ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, Playlist listeners. I'm Rob Sachs, Managing Director of Podcasts here at Foreign Policy. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. This week, we're bringing you a FP Live conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci, on the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Just a heads up, this conversation was recorded earlier this week. Here's FP Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agarwal. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agarwal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for this special edition of FP Live. I say live, but we're actually on tape this time. We recorded the interview you're about to watch on Monday, May the 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern, but we still managed to take several questions from you, our FP subscribers, so stay tuned for the answers to all of that. Now, with an uptick in coronavirus cases around the world, and as we embark on a third year of living with the pandemic, we have a really important guest joining us, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's arguably the world's most renowned scientist and the lead voice within both the Biden and Trump administrations on the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Fauci has advised seven presidents and has worked on the U.S. federal response to the world's most challenging health emergencies such as AIDS, Ebola, Zika, anthrax, and many others. He's been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. Dr. Fauci, welcome to FP Live. A real pleasure to have you with us. My, my pleasure. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. So um, let's begin with where we are in the United States. You said last week we are out of the acute component of the pandemic phase. And in real terms, what does that mean for Americans? And what now are the main priorities for the Biden administration as it handles the next phase yeah. of the pandemic? Well, when I said we're out of the acute fulminant phase, what I meant is that, as you recall, a few months ago, we were having uh, approximately 900,000 cases per day, tens of thousands of hospitalizations, and an average of over 3,000 deaths per day. We still are in the middle of a pandemic, to be sure, make sure there's no confusion about that. But when I say we're out of the acute fulminant stage, right now, uh, we have gone down dramatically. Our number of deaths per day are down to one-tenth of what they were, namely 300 a day. We have much less hospitalizations. And the case numbers went way down from literally 900,000 to around 15,000. Now, as 
we've seen before, we're starting to see an uptick in cases, particularly with the new variant, the BA2 variant. But what we are seeing is something that our colleagues in the UK and in some of the European countries have seen where although the cases are starting to go up, they're not going up in a very steep, fulminant way. And they're not associated with a concomitant increase in hospitalizations or the utilization of intensive care unit beds. And what it's telling us is that the combination of community immunity, which we have now, you know, 90 plus percent of our population has either been vaccinated and boosted or have gotten infected or both. So there's a degree of basic immunity in the community, which is not protecting us specifically from infection, but seems to be protecting us from that surge of, it, of hospitalizations, which have stressed the healthcare system during previous eras of this pandemic. For example, the Delta, which we had last summer around the 4th of July was much, much, much different than what we're seeing right now. Bottom line is we're much better off now than we were a year ago, but we are still dealing with this virus. It's not behind us. We're still dealing with it. We're having a small bit of an uptick now, and we hope that we don't see a major uptick as we get into the fall, but that remains to be seen. We're gonna to have to wait and see, which is the reason why we're still encouraging very strongly people to get vaccinated, if you've not been vaccinated and if you have been vaccinated, make sure to get boosted if, in fact, you're eligible for a boost. Now, uh, Dr. Fauci, you chose not to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner last weekend. President Biden made the opposite choice. I imagine there's no right or wrong here. Um, but what does this example of individual choice, what does that show for regular Americans as they choose how much risk to take on in their everyday lives? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's very relevant to what we're all facing right now. As long as there is virus that is circulating, people need to evaluate either themselves or with the help of their physician or their healthcare provider, what the level of risk it would be if they get infected. Now, it's going to be very difficult to prevent yourself from getting infected if you have no caution at all. You just go into indoor settings, no mask at all. So you've got to ask yourself, what is my own personal risk? Not only for myself, my age, my underlying condition, and other factors which people may not appreciate. For example, who is living with you in your household? So if you are a healthy 40-year-old person with no underlying conditions, but you have an elderly person or a person who's immune compromised, who's living with you, that if you get infected, even if you don't get any significant symptoms and you bring that infection into your own home, you could endanger the health and maybe the life of someone close to you. So there are so many things that go into an individual decision. I made a decision because of I was weighing the risk and the benefit. You know, I've been to several White House Correspondents Ball. They're fun, but it's not a big deal if I don't go, which I didn't go this year. And I said, 
I'm 81 years old. I have a number of very important commitments that are coming up in the next week or so. If I wound up getting infected, even if I didn't get terribly ill, I'd have to cancel all of those commitments. So I made a personal decision based on my own evaluation of my risk. And that decision was not to take the chance and not go, which is what I did. I did not go. And that makes sense. Now, as you know, we took questions from our subscribers ahead of time, Dr. Fauci, and one thing kept coming up. What's your current guidance on mask wearing? And is America easing up too quickly? Well, my, my uh, uh, guidance on that is really very much in parallel with the CDC, that masking in indoor congregate settings, when you are in a zone that is what we call a green zone, namely the level of infections, hospitalization, and hospital capacity is such that masking is not required. So I would not necessarily wear a mask if I was in a room with a few people, I knew what their vaccine status was. But if I would go into an, an unknown place, an indoor setting, where there are a lot of people around, I have no idea what their status is of vaccine. Again, given my age and my risk aversion because of my other responsibilities, I would wear a mask. Um, so I wouldn't say it's absolutely necessary and you must uh, regulate someone to wear a mask, but I would say you make a personal decision that if you're in a setting like that, wear a mask. If you're among people, you know them, you know they're vaccinated, you know they're boosted, that doesn't mean you have to wear a mask all the time when you're inside. But there are certain circumstances where it's much more likely that the benefit of a mask would really be important. Um, and another one of our subscribers, Amir Z, wants to know why the U.S. performed poorly in the last three years, despite having the world's best healthcare system. And knowing what you now know, what would you recommend America had done differently? Well, what America had done differently would have taken decades to, to fix. It isn't a one thing for this pandemic that was specific. Our healthcare system has a great deal of disparities. Uh, we have a very heterogeneous population, many of which have a much greater risk of developing severity of disease, mostly our minority populations, our brown and black populations. Not only are they in occupational situations that put them at greater risk of getting exposed, because as a general cohort, they are more likely on essential jobs which require their being out into the community as opposed to many other people who might in a different socioeconomic stature, they may be able to do their business with a computer and Zooming. Number two, if you look at the underlying conditions that minorities have that are much more likely than you see in the general population, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, chronic lung disease, much more prevalent in minority populations. And that's why they've suffered disparately greater than the general population. Also, we have an uneven healthcare system. The access to good healthcare isn't evenly distributed throughout the country, whereas in other nations, 
that have a more uniform healthcare system, they've done much, much better than we have. Those are just a few of the reasons why, even though we're a very rich country, even though we were deemed to be as well or better prepared than anyone else for a pandemic, we did quite poorly. We have almost a million deaths over a two and a half year period. That is very serious. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Dr. Fauci, we're foreign policy, so it's only natural that we're going to try and get you to look at other parts of the world as well. And I want to ask you about China and their so-called zero COVID policy. Quite frankly, is it too stringent? Well, I think so, because if you were going to shut down a country and lock down The reason to lock down is first to realize that's a temporary measure to give you enough time to properly vaccinate the overwhelming proportion of your population with a good vaccine, particularly the vulnerables, such as the elderly. China apparently did not do that. They locked down, but yet the vaccine uptake particularly among their elderly, is very poor. And the vaccines that they use, quite frankly, are not as effective as vaccines that are used in other parts of the world. So I understand the strategy of locking down, but you've got to do it with a purpose. If you just lock down and wait for the virus to disappear, it's not going to happen. There has to be a purpose for that. And that purpose is to prepare yourself for the inevitability that the virus will enter your community. And locking down is not going to stop it unless you get the people protected. So given what you say, Dr. Fauci, and I'm channeling several of our subscribers here, all of whom are saying that, you know, at some level, the United States and the West um, failed to vaccinate the rest of the world, or at least failed to deliver on some of the promises that were made. Uh, the World Health Organization had set a target, I think, of about 70% of the world being vaccinated by, by the middle of this year. It's way behind those targets. Uh, what do you make of that? And, and you know, do you have regrets then uh, in terms of America's response? Well, you know, that is a much, much more complicated situation than people realize. Um, it goes well beyond providing doses to the developing world. The United States, quite frankly, has done very well. We've given now you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of doses to 114 countries. We've pledged and or given 1.2 billion doses by the end of this year. We've given $4 billion to COVAX. So the United States has done very well. What we found out, much to our dismay, is that the vaccine doses that were made available to the developing world were not being utilized. 
they were saying, don't send any more vaccine. We're not able to utilize it. And the reason for that is that the infrastructure for the, for the, for the implementation of getting a vaccine into a vaccination into someone's arm. So it would be, goes well beyond just getting doses to a developing world. We're in the somewhat paradoxical situation where the countries that need the vaccine are saying, don't send us anymore because we're not able to implement and get it into people's arms. So what we need to do is go well beyond a plan to get vaccines in numbers to people, but to help them with their infrastructure, to be able to get those vaccines administered to people once you get the vaccine to that country. So that's what I mean by it's so much more complicated than just why aren't we giving vaccines to the developing world? But of course, the infrastructure you're, you're describing globally could take decades to sort of build around the world. Exactly, exactly. That's why I said it's not a problem you're going to solve overnight by giving more vaccines. The infrastructure situation is going to take much, much longer than one season. So let me ask you a related question then, uh, turning to Ukraine. You know, FP subscriber Ken Berry asks that given the relatively low vaccination rates there in Ukraine, are you now worried about conditions of war acting as an incubator for the next dangerous variant? And in a sense, this holds true for Ukraine, but also many other parts of the world. I mean, think of Yemen or Afghanistan or, you know, other countries that are struggling in so many different ways and not just from the pandemic. Well, you're absolutely correct. And that gets back to the saying that we in public health have said for so long, that a global pandemic can only be solved by a global response. You can't have just some countries responding because then you give the virus, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, you give it the opportunity to proliferate, expand and mutate and develop variants. Well, there are two aspects to your question. The first relates specifically to Ukraine. Whenever you have the disruption of anything from a natural disaster to a disruption of society by conflict, in this case, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that always leads to a disruption of healthcare systems, including how one can respond to a pandemic. But it goes well beyond Ukraine. You've mentioned some of the other countries even in sub-Saharan Africa, where you have you know, less than 20% of some countries are vaccinating their people, particularly when you have a high level of other diseases like HIV AIDS, in which the virus can have a particularly greater impact on people, that has secondary effects throughout the world because it gives the virus the opportunity to continue to spread from person to person. And the more the virus replicates, the greater the opportunity you give it to mutate. And when you mutate, that's when you get new variants. So let me uh, just push you a little bit on that because uh, you know, are there specific surveillance or detection steps, uh, increased sequencing that those kinds of countries could institute? And again, keeping in mind that they have so many other problems, uh, weak infrastructures, not great healthcare systems in all cases. 
Um, but what can uh, sort of the developed world uh, or global bodies like the WHO do to ensure that if there is a new variant, it's detected quickly? Well, that is part of the pandemic preparedness and response plan to be able to communicate and provide throughout the world the capability of doing rapid, real-time, real-world sequencing of variants as they arise so that one can prepare by modifying the vaccines uh, to get an appropriate response. I mean, in, in Southern Africa, to their great credit, the South Africans are doing an incredibly good job of being able to pick up these variants in real time. I mean, they're as good as anyone throughout the world in doing that. And they've been able to point out the evolution of Omicron as well as the sub lineages of Omicron. Um, they do very well. Other Southern African countries, maybe not so well, and maybe in other areas, the Middle East and other parts of the world, they don't have that capability. And it's, as you suggested, and I agree with you, it really is the responsibility of the developed world to be able to partner with those countries to provide with them and for them the ability to do that real-time sequencing and surveillance. You know, you mentioned South Africa there, and it strikes me that assessments of various countries and how they've handled the pandemic are essentially judgments based on snapshots in time. I mean, so I remember a couple of years ago, there were early winners in Asia, uh, maybe even such as India, but then they ended up with disasters in year two. And now that we're at year three, it seems like, again, sort of the decks are moving around a little bit. So given that you've had so much time to, to you know, take this 30,000 foot view at sort of the performance of different countries, at this point of time, looking back at the last three years, which countries do you think have done best, if you could name, say, two or three? Well, you know, I would have named a couple that are now in real trouble. I mean, China did well in the beginning. It's a disaster now in Shanghai and likely in Beijing. Same with Taiwan. Singapore did very well in the beginning. I think Australia and New Zealand have done very well. But remember, they have very special circumstances. When you have an island, you can actually close things off and be self-sufficient for a while until you get your people vaccinated. But many of the countries, I think you, the example you gave, remember three years, two and a half years ago, India, they felt, well, gee, we don't have any problem. Nothing's happening here. And then all of a sudden you wind up having so many more infections, hospitalizations and deaths in India than we would have thought. So I think the bottom line, Robbie, is that everybody got hurt real badly in this. Many of our subscribers have been asking about the role of partisan politics and the polarized media. How did that impact your role as a scientist? Terribly so. I think if there was one factor when people ask me, what was the thing that got in the way of an adequate response, certainly in the United States, is the profound divisiveness in our society, where we seem to have forgotten that the common enemy is the virus and that you have differences that are more than differences, they're really the propagation of untruths. And that's very disturbing, where normalization of untruths becomes something that's accepted, that people can say things that are completely false and completely misleading. You can't do that when you're dealing with a global pandemic. You can't do that because then you make the response 
to that pandemic inadequate. And that's exactly what happened, sorrily so, and it hurts me to say it, even here in my own country. Well, I guess on that note, what was it like to be undermined and often contradicted by your own boss, the former president, Donald Trump? Well, that was very uncomfortable, obviously. I mean, I would have hoped that there would have been cooperation in addressing it as opposed to opposition. I took no great pleasure in having to be at odds with the president of the United States, but I had no choice. Do you worry about his reelection? No, I don't get involved in politics. (laughs) So I don't worry. I worry about public health, not people's reelection. And and rightly so. Uh, Another one of our subscribers, Ryan S., uh, who's asking on behalf of his high school class, um, if you had issues performing your job in the face of an intense public backlash. And I think he's referring here to you receiving debt threats and the spread of misinformation and disinformation, I should say, uh, about COVID. Well, I mean, it's it, it makes my job more difficult, but it doesn't stop me from doing what I need to do. It's unfortunate that a public health official, a scientist and a physician like myself, only because I'm saying things like, it's important to get vaccinated, it's important to get boosted, and where appropriate, it's important to wear masks, that because of that, I get my life threatened. That just seems really strange. And that tells you a bit about how strange our society is these days. Indeed. Uh, One of our subscribers, KYE, wants to know about the status and research, the status of research and treatment for long COVID. Um, I think for for most of us, I I speak for, you know, it's a bit of a mystery. Well, you're right. It is a bit of a mystery still. We're doing a lot of studies to try and understand really what the etiology and pathogenesis of that is, because it was really a very important problem that, you know, there's estimates that are not necessarily totally accurate, but anywhere from five to up to 30% of people who get COVID have lingering of signs and symptoms well beyond the resolution of the acute infection. We don't know what that is and why that is, but we certainly need to find out because with so many hundreds of millions of people getting infected throughout the world, that could be a significant problem if we don't find out what it is and what we can do about it. And Dr. Fauci, I have just one last question. What do you think the world can do to sort of prevent the next pandemic, as it were? Well, I, it, in my mind, it has to be lessons learned from this pandemic. And that's what you're going to be hearing a lot about, about true pandemic preparedness at a global level with good surveillance, good cooperation, transparency, the importance of investment in basic and clinical research, which if anything was a success story in this outbreak is what the scientific community brought to it, to get a vaccine from the time that the virus was first recognized to the time that we had a successful vaccine going into the arms of individuals was a completely unprecedented 11 months. We haven't had anything even close to that. That's one of the most important and absolutely transforming advance in biomedical research translation into a meaningful intervention, literally in history, I would think, to do something that fast. So it's both public health preparedness, as well as continued investment 
in biomedical research to allow us to do the kinds of things in the next pandemic that we were able to do, for example, with the vaccine in this pandemic. Dr. Anthony Thachi, I know you have to go, so thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Robbie. That was Foreign Policy's FP Live discussion with Dr. Anthony Fauci. For more information, please head to foreignpolicy.com. And as always, if you'd like to take part in a future FP Live discussion, please consider subscribing. Playlist listeners even get a special discount code. Head to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter the code playlist to save 15%. Our show is produced by Simone Perez. Maria Jimena Aragon, and Rosie Julen. Thanks so much for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Until next week, I'm Rob Sachs. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com podcasts.